Okay, now that I'm up on uh, stage here, I, I, I'm noticing this like gulf between uh, this gulf, a chasm of chairs between you and me. Is this the normal seating arrangement? Is this what? Okay, because it kind of makes me feel a little insecure as a speaker up here that you're so far away. But um, I, could someone give me a hug, make me feel better about myself? Well, I'm, I'm glad to be here with you, and uh, the connection with Ken was, I, I saw Ken in November uh, after many, many years, and it was kind of a sweet, uh, sweet reunion. Now, I'm just going to, I'm going to start off this morning by just being a little honest here with you and, uh, and share with you a struggle in my own life. Uh, I have an addiction that I've been battling, I'm getting, getting uh, counseling for it. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to lay it out here on the table. Um, I have an addiction to, uh, to ice cream. Are there any other fellow addicts out there? Yeah, look at that. It's a safe place to share of our struggles. Uh, in fact, my wife said, yeah, take a picture of our, our freezer and, and show these people just how sick you are. And so uh, I went ahead and took a, a picture of uh, my refrigerator at home. Kind of have my ice cream categorized there. You walk into my house any day of the week, walk into my uh, uh, kitchen, open up the freezer, look inside, you will find anywhere from uh, six to eight different kinds of ice cream any day of the week. I love ice cream. In fact, I have, uh, I have, my wife and I have this agreement in our, in our home. She, she handles, you know, the grocery shopping, which is a good thing for us. But I told her, as, as the man of the house, I have to buy the ice cream. And so I go to the grocery store just to buy the ice cream. And I, I have a particular kind of experience in our grocery store where the, you have these big lined refrigerated, you know, sections. Uh, I know when I'm getting closer to the ice cream section because the, the lights in that section get a little brighter as I approach. And I begin hearing these angelic voices singing, Alleluia. And so I'll go and I'll just stand in front of the ice cream uh, freezer there for two or three hours just kind of soaking it in. And um, there's a particular kind of ice cream that I lock into. It's my favorite. Maybe you've seen it. It's where they take vanilla ice cream and mix it with kind of your favorite candy bar, right? Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream. It's my absolute favorite ice cream. And the Lord has been good to us. He's provided it in so many different forms. Um, well, can we close in prayer? I think that's all we need to say. God is, God is good. I know you might be thinking, okay, why in the world are we, are we talking about ice cream? Well, here's what I want to do. Um, I want to... Uh, I want to take ice cream and I want to use it as a kind of an illustration to help us think specifically about truth. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make two claims about my favorite kind of ice cream. Here's the first claim. Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream is delicious. Now raise your hand if you think that statement is true. Yeah, all those believers out there. All right, wait, wait. Raise your Again, if you think it's true, raise your hand if you think that statement's true. Okay, that's a lot of us here. But that's not all of us. If you are in here and you're willing to admit that you think that statement is false, go ahead and bravely raise your hand. Okay. I think we have counselors to see you folks uh, after the service. All right. So um, let, let's think about that. Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream is delicious. Would it be odd? Let's say I'm interacting with one of you and you say, you know, Brett, I think that, I think that claim is false. I think, it, I think Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream is disgusting. Now, what would be the appropriate response in our conversation? If I looked at you and I said, well, you know, are you struggling with sin? Is that what's going on here? 
Would that be appropriate response? If I said, you know what? Um, I, I, I'm really concerned about your soul. Would that be the appropriate response? It, well, it doesn't seem so, does it? I mean, this seems to be the kind of case where you've got your favorite flavors of ice cream, I've got mine, and we kind of live and let live. No problem. Now, let me, let me make the second claim. What if I said to you, Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream is a medicine that helps control diabetes? How many of you think that claim is true? Raise your hand. Yeah, now, I'm, not, I'm guessing that the majority of us aren't medical researchers, we're not doctors, but we have a lot of confidence to be able to say that that claim is false. Now, if someone disagreed with us, particularly if our diabetic friend disagreed with that claim and they thought Reese's Peanut Butter Cup ice cream did help their diabetes, we would, we would work hard to try to persuade them out of that belief. Whereas in the first case, if you don't like my fla- favorite flavor of ice cream, I don't really work hard to, pers- I don't per- try to persuade you out of that belief. But in the second case, I would, and we would say, look, there seems to be a truth about the matter here, and, and let me try to you know, give you some reasons why I think this. Two very different claims that help us to understand uh, different kinds of truths. Now, what is the medicine that helps a diabetic control their diabetes? It's insulin, right? The diabetic does not inject ice cream. They inject insulin. And so now we have two different kinds of truth claims here. The first claim, when I say Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream is delicious, that's what we call a subjective truth claim. It's subjectively true. A subjective truth is true for the person speaking or true for the subject. So that claim is true for me, even though it may not be true for you. And we have all kinds of, uh, of, of subjective kind of claims. Um, these are what we would call personal preferences. They're preferences. I've got mine, you've got yours. These are not the kinds of things that we would say are true for everyone or true universally, but they're preferences. In fact, preferences can change, can't they? I might eat so much Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream in the next year that I'm sick of it, you know, in, in a while. And I may, no, I may no longer think it's delicious. So these kinds of truths, these preferential truths, can change. Now, when I made the claim that Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream is a medicine that helps control diabetes, that claim is certainly false, but it's an example of a different kind of claim. It's what we call an objective truth claim. That's an objective truth is true for the thing itself or true for the object. Right? These are things outside of the subject. These are things outside of my mind. There's a world out there, an objective world out there. And so when I say Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream, I'm making a claim about some object, the ice cream. And the claim is either true or false. This is where we deal with truth and falsity, fact or fiction. This is where we talk about things that are right and wrong. These are not preferences, right? But we're talking about fact. In fact, objective truths are true whether someone believes them or not. So if the diabetic thinks that ice cream helps control their diabetes, well, that belief would be false. And it doesn't matter what they believe about the matter. What what matters is the facts, right? And so that is objective truth. Now, you think you understand the distinction between subjective and objective, Think ice cream and insulin, all right? Ice cream truth and insulin truth. Because here's what I want to do. I want to give you a little test. 
give you a test and see, uh, let's go through these claims here. If I say, that guy's shirt is red, is that an objective claim or a subjective claim? It's an objective claim. If I say red is the best color, is that objective or subjective? It's subjective. If I say uh, 2 plus 2 equals 4, that's objective, right? Uh, If I say tropical island vacations are the best kind, that's subjective. It's a preference. If I say Brett can bench press 350 pounds, why is there laughter? Um, I'm deeply offended, folks. Apparently, you're not uh, convinced by my massive physique. All right. Now, let's go back to the claim. Is it a subjective claim or an objective claim? It's an objective claim. Now, you might not know whether it's true or false, but it's still an objective claim, right? It's about an objective state of affairs. Brett can bench press 350 pounds. Now, if you're not convinced, the second thing you might ask is, you know, we'll prove it, Brett. And so what we do is we go down to the gym, we put 350 pounds on the bench press, and boom, I'll show you what's up. I'll show you I can't do it. <laughs> right? And you will discover that that claim is objectively false. And notice there's a difference between a, a, claim, a, a claim being objectively true or false and us being able to prove it. Th- those are two different things. Just because you can't prove one way or the other doesn't mean there's not a fact about the matter. All right? Uh, atoms and neutrons, uh, atoms consist of protons, neutrons, and electrons. That claim is objective. Or how about claim number seven? God exists. Objective or subjective? Oh. I hear a few objectives, but definitely we didn't have the kind of the consensus that we had for those earlier claims. How about claim eight? What if I said Jesus is the only way to God and Jews are wrong about him? Is that objective or is that subjective? This test is getting more difficult. (laughs) I would guess that there's probably a mixed bag here on those last two claims in terms of what we think uh, if they're objective and subjective. I would think that probably some of you say, no, those are objective. You know, those things are true whether you believe them or not. Some of you would probably claim, no, those are subjective. Uh, maybe we, we can't prove those things or other people believe certain things. It's just true for us because we believe it. How about uh, number nine? What if we made the claim premarital sex is wrong? Is that objective or is that subjective? Or how about the last claim? I mean, let's, let's get a little controversial here. Is it wrong? Is it wrong for women to have elective abortions, an abortion where their life is not at stake? Is that an objective claim or is that a subjective claim? I want you to kind of sit and, and think about that a little bit. Now, notice when it came to, uh, to statements one through six, it, we, it seemed pretty easy for us to kind of come to consensus and say objective, subjective. But something happened when we switched it to 7, 8, 9, and 10. No longer do we have the consensus. Maybe some of us are a little unsure on that one. Some disagreement here. So what's going on here? Why with 7, 8, 9, and 10 do we, do we have some difficulty answering that? 
Because at the end of the day, here's what I would do, is I would make an argument that 7, 8, 9, and 10 are objective claims. They're objective claims. Now, there's a lot more discussion we could have on this. But I, I just want you to know, uh, I want you to see kind of what, what, what just happened there. 1 through 6, no problem. But 7, 8, 9, and 10, there was some difficulty. Now, what, what did we do? What, what changed? Well, one thing that we, we definitely noticed is that we switched categories, didn't we? 7 and 8 are religious claims. 9 and 10 are moral claims. And for those who have, who have been raised in Western culture, who live in American culture, our culture uh, communicates certain messages about religion and morality. And we could look at kind of the history of thought. We can look at how we, have, we kind of, there's been kind of this postmodern turn. And, and you have this, these, these certain ideas that floating out there in the culture about truth. Right? You've got claims like all truth is local or there are no meta narratives. You know, we should be suspicious of truth claims. That's pretty prominent, right? Be suspicious of, of absolute truth claims or all truth claims are, are power grabs. And what we discover is that in our culture, this concept that truth is subjective or relative is prominent. We are simply swimming in a sea of relativism. We look at some of the stats from uh, George Barna's research group, and it, it seems that uh, the majority of adults are, uh, are relativistic when it comes to their view of ethics or morality. And you've got the same thing with young people. And then he kind of he parses this out and looks at, at the, the, the Christian church. And even within the church, you have the majority of people who are, seem to be relativistic in their moral views. Christian Smith did a, a major study on the religious life of, of American teenagers, uh, and he released the results in this book, Soul Searching. And uh, there was a, a lot of data that he came up with, but, but one of the questions that they asked were, young people was, how many of you believe that your religion is the one true religion? And they kind of broke it down into the different religious uh, kind of divisions, and they looked at conservative Protestant churches. And uh, conservative Protestant churches had 46% of young people, the minority, who would affirm that, there is, that, that Jesus is the only way to God. And if you go to your mainline street down the church, that number drops to 26%. Uh, and what Smith and his uh, researchers found was that uh, American youth, like American adults, are nearly without exception profoundly individualistic. The typical bywords are, who am I to judge? If that's what they choose, whatever. Each person decides for himself, and if it works for them, fine. Some teenagers champion the skeptic's view of individual relativistic truth with great relish. Some version of this individualistic subjectivism and relativism is the dominant assumed viewpoint about religion amongst most contemporary U.S. adolescents. And Smith asks the question, well, where do they get this from? And he finds that young people are very conventional in their religious practices, and what he finds is they go to church with mom and dad, and that these ideas come down from those adults who train them. Because adults don't, uh, uh, Christian adults don't fare much better. You look at evangelical, evangelical Protestants, the, uh, the Pew Forum's recent study on this, they found that 36% of evangelical Protestants affirm that uh, there is one, uh, my religion is the one true faith leading to eternal life. While many, 57%, 
uh, would, would argue that many religions can lead to eternal life. And those numbers uh, drop when you go to the mainline church down the street. And so what we find is there is this kind of dominant relativistic view about truth. But typically we don't apply that to every single area of life. What we discover is that relativism really creeps up when it comes to religion and when it comes to morality. Now, I want you to realize as we talk about objective and subjective truth, we're not going to leave this in the abstract here. But ideas have consequences. Let's be clear. The ideas that we come to hold, that we affirm, have consequences for ultimately the way we live our life. Our action is directed by those beliefs that we hold to be true. And so what are the consequences of this this relativism when it comes to religion and morality? Here's consequence number one. Relativism subverts this whole concept of sin. This clear concept that you see throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Relativism undermines that idea. Think about it. If morality simply turns out to be a personal preference, right? Because if you affirm that, that the moral claims, right, claim 9 and 10, if you, if you affirm that morality is merely a subjective preference, then what happens to the concept of sin? Well, notice what C.S. Lewis says. He says, it is after you have realized that there is a moral law. So an objective moral law. And a power behind that law. And that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. You see, Part of this central message of Christ is that, uh, that, that, that we are, are, are broken, uh, corrupt creatures. That's the idea of sin. It's certainly not politically correct, but according to the Scripture, and it's an objective truth. And it assumes the idea of sin, the idea of brokenness, assumes that there's some standard, a way things ought to be. But a way things ought to be apply, implies an objective moral law. But if you don't have an objective moral law, if it merely is subjective, everyone kind of decides for themselves, or each culture decides for themselves, then this whole concept of sin begins to evaporate, you see. And, And Lewis says, look, Christianity can't speak then at that point because the message of the cross is one of redemption. But redemption implies uh, that there's been some kind of failure. Right? And so, so sin is subverted. And so in a culture that this is the dominant view, you can see how it would mute the message of the cross. If people go around thinking, well, they're, they're, you know, it, there's no kind of right and wrong. It's just kind of what I choose. Again, think in terms of ice cream. It's merely my preference. You've got your truth. You Christians, if you want to hold that truth, that's fine for you but don't impose it on me. I've got my own moral truth. Well, if that's the case, well, then, you know, there's no violation of some law that I need to be forgiven for. And so the message of the cross falls on deaf ears. Consequence number two, objective. uh, If we think that, uh, that morality is subjective, this actually erodes our mission. 
Think about it. If, 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 if our Christian claims, when I mentioned uh, seven and eight, right, God exists or Jesus is the only way to God, if those turn out to merely be preferential claims, our preferences, well, what kind of motivation does that generate for us to go out on mission? I mean, think about it. If it turns out to be a preference claim, it's no different than your favorite flavor of ice cream. So you've got your favorite flavor of religion, and it's Christianity. Your Buddhist neighbor has his favorite flavor of ice cream, Buddhism. The, uh, the Muslim has his favorite flavor of ice cream. And, and how much time are you going to spend right, convincing someone that their favorite flavor of ice cream is not, not, the, not the healthy choice, not the choice for them, not the right choice? Does anyone in here go into a, an ice cream shop like Baskin-Robbins or Cold Stone or, or whatever with like maybe a little track that says Reese's peanut butter ice cream is the one way. Are you going to do that? Of course not. Are you, if you see someone, if I'm about to order Reese's peanut butter ice cream and I see someone over there, they're going to order Rocky Road, do I walk over them and say, hey, look, I, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know you that well, but I just want to tell you, you're choosing the wrong flavor. <laughs> well, of course not, because it's a merely a subjective preference. And if, relig- if our religious claims fall into that same category, well, what motivation do I have to go out on mission to proclaim this good news? Because according to this claim, everyone's got their own good news that works for them. And so relativism undermines our mission. Thirdly, relativism undermines justice. It undermines justice because the whole concept of justice assumes a moral framework. Right? I mean, the, uh, for the Justice Conference, notice the, uh, one of the banners, justice envisions a wholly better world. Well, better assumes that there's some standard by which you're measuring better or worse. You can't have better or worse unless there's some objective standard. And so when we look at issues of justice, when we look at something like sex trafficking or modern-day slavery, we look at those issues, those, to say that that is wrong across cultures is to assume a, an objective moral standard, that it doesn't matter what culture you live in. It doesn't matter what your belief system is, that the, expl- the uh, exploitation of innocent people is wrong. It's universally wrong. It's wrong whether you believe it or not. But if you, so, so, so moral reformers, those who are concerned about justice, uh, they, they must have a, a strong view that there is a, a right and a wrong out there. And if we're relativistic, well, then each culture decides for themselves. Each individual decides for themselves. And the whole concept of justice is undermined. And then lastly, this relativistic view undermines religion. It makes religion irrelevant, right? Our culture puts religion and moral claims, which I would argue are two of the most important areas of life, and it, put, it makes them trivial, and it puts them into the subjective realm. Here's an analogy to help you think through this. We live in a two-story house, meaning our culture gives us this, this concept that uh, you have this two-story house and that our certain ideas and claims 
fit either in the bottom floor, the bottom floor is the objective floor, and the objective floor deals with facts and knowledge and those kinds of things. So areas like science, you know, chemistry, biology, maybe uh, law, uh, these kinds of things, business, we would put those in the objective floor. These are publicly accessible. They deal with fact and knowledge, not personal preference. But then you have this whole other area of life, and that's the second floor, the subjective floor. And that's where things like our, uh, our family traditions go in, right? We wouldn't say that our family traditions are, are right for everybody. We, we've got different family traditions. Uh, we, we have preferences in clothing, preferences in food. These are subjective things, but our culture also puts religion and morality in that, in that category. And so your religion, your morality turn out to be subjective, and our culture says, yeah, you know, it's subjective, and keep it there. Keep it there. And what Christian Smith and his researchers found when they, 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 they talked to young people is that what happened is this, what this view does is it puts religion in the background of life. If it's merely subjective, well, think about the things that, how much time do you think about your personal preferences? How much time do you spend thinking through your favorite flavors of ice cream? Those are in the background of life, and they only, you only bring them out when you go into the ice cream shop and want some ice cream. But you don't spend much time thinking about your personal preferences in ice cream. And what Smith and his researchers found is for religious young people, they found that their religion, their Christianity, was mostly situated in the background of everyday life because you've got this personal pride. you got the sec, uh, fact-value split. You have the subjective-objective split. And so all that subjective stuff goes in the background of life. The objective stuff, well, that's what we do kind of Monday through Friday, right? Objective truth. If you want to delegitimize Christianity, you don't have to argue against the views of Christians. What you, what you just have to do is label it religion. And so you have uh, uh, Christopher Reeve, right, the, the, the act, actor who was involved in a terrible horse-riding accident, became a, a quadriplegic. He was a big advocate of embryo stem cell research. He was before a student group at Yale University. And this is what he said. He said, when matters of public policy are debated, no religions should have a seat at the table. Notice he wasn't saying anything about the particular views. He was saying any claim, any view that we can label religious, well, it shouldn't even be here. Let's put it up in that second floor, right? And you can just totally delegitimize the view. Uh, during the uh, 2004 presidential debate, uh, the issue of abortion came up. This is what uh, candidate John Kerry said. He said, first of all, I cannot tell you how deeply I respect the belief about life and when it begins. I'm a Catholic, raised a Catholic. I was an altar boy. Religion has been a huge part of my life. Helped lead me through a war. Leads me today. But... Notice the but. I can't take what is an article of faith for me and legislate it for someone who doesn't share that article of faith, whether they be an agnostic, atheist, Jew, Protestant, whatever. I can't do that. And all I want you to notice is that what, what, what did he do with his own view? He said, well, it's religion, and so I have to put it in that second story. And so I don't have to argue against the religious view. I just have to call it religion, and it's subjective, and it's, and it's, delegit it's delegitimized can't bring that one into the public square. And so these are the consequences of relativism. 
And so I want you to know that this view has consequences for how we, how we live life. That's why it's so important for us to think carefully through this. Now, I want to deal a little bit more with this claim um, uh, that, that uh, you know, people make that these are our truths. Because what you're going to, for those of us who would claim that, you know, these religious and moral claims are objectively true, there's going to be pushback. I understand that. No problem. Let's, let's talk about that. People are going to say something to this effect. They're going to say, well, that's your truth, Brett. That's your truth, Christian, and other people have their truths. The atheist has his truth. You've got your truth. So how can you say that, that your claim is the right claim, that it's objectively true? Well, l- let's take that claim, that's your truth. When someone says to me, that's your truth, I, I offer them a, a follow-up question to kind of help surface uh, maybe, I think, some, some confusion on this matter. When someone says, that's your truth, I say, okay, tell, tell me for a second. What does my dad look like? What does my dad look like? So someone in the audience, what do you think my dad looks like? Let's get some audience participation. What, do you think, what color hair do you think my dad has? Okay, dark hair. Give me a specific color. Black? Okay, so my dad has black hair. Uh, how, how tall do you think my dad is? Someone said short, if you didn't hear that. Uh, can we lay hands and pray for whoever said? Uh, okay, I heard, I, what, I, what, what really stood out to me is someone said 6'1". I, I like that answer. Okay, so let's go with that. All right, so my dad has black hair. He's 6'1". How much do you think my dad weighs? Be be careful. 185. Let's go with that. All right. So my dad has black hair. He's 6'1". He's 185. Now, and you can probably bench 350. Absolutely. Yes, a very godly man right here. Um, Look, now if you said, yeah, I think that's probably what your dad looks like. If I responded to you and said, well, that's your truth about my dad. You'd probably look at me strange, right, if I said, well, that's your truth. And if someone else said, hey, yeah, your dad probably has gray hair, he's five foot eight, and he weighs, you know, 250. And I said, well, that's your truth about my dad. Well, it, doesn't that seem to be kind of odd? Can my dad be 6'1 and 5'8 at the same time? No, he can't, he can't be 6'1 and 5'8 at the same time. Those are mutually exclusive beliefs. And so if we want to know... Uh, if this description of my dad is true or false, what would we do? Yeah, we bring out my dad. We'd, uh, we'd show a picture of my dad, right? There's my dad. Now you're laughing at my dad. Uh, he's got white hair. He's Santa Claus. How, ma- how many of you believe this is my dad? Nobody believes this is my dad. Okay, a couple of believers here. Um, look, we go and take pictures with this Santa Claus every year. There's my family. Notice the Santa. Uh, 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011. Same Santa. We'd go take pictures with my dad. He's a professional Santa. How many of you believe that? Skeptics. <laughs> a room full of skeptics. Okay, how about this? Now, I know some of you are going, okay, I, I know what the problem is, right? You're looking at me. You look at Santa. There's absolutely no resemblance. Well, here's a family picture, all right? Uh, I put a little helpful equation there for you, in case you couldn't figure that out. If you take Santa, you put him with my mom, who's a short Vietnamese woman, you get me, all right? That's how that works. 
Uh, my, this is actually my dad, Gary Kunkel. My, he's my biological father, and uh, he is a professional Santa. So, yeah. <laughs> I will pass on the news that you gave him a round of applause. That's, uh, I, now, so, okay, what are we talking about here? Oh, okay. Yeah, what my dad looks like. Now, if, I, if you said he was 6'1 and 185 and had black hair, uh, I wouldn't say that's your truth. I might say that's your belief, right? You have your belief, but we know that belief is not the same thing as truth. Just because you believe something doesn't make it true. And so in order to correct a false belief, what did I do? Well, I put up a picture, a picture that represents what? A picture that represents reality. Reality. And so now follow with me here because I'm going to kind of wrap this up and see how this relates to that truth test. And so the, the, our, the description of my dad that doesn't fit reality, we would say those descriptions are false. He's not 6'1", he's not 5'8", he's 5'7". He doesn't have dark hair, he's got white hair. So we would say those are objective claims about my dad, but they are objectively false. And to determine if they're objectively false, we point to reality. And this leads us to our, 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 a clearer understanding of, 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 of truth. Truth is correspondence to reality. Our views, our ideas, our beliefs are true if they correspond to reality. And we understand this correspondence relationship. If I make the claim that I surf, that is true if it corresponds to an objective state of affairs, if it corresponds to reality, to the real world. If I say Ella is my four-year-old daughter, that's objectively true if it corresponds to reality. And, of course, I would make the further claim that obje- Ella is, uh, is the cutest four-year-old in the world, and that would be objectively true, right? Um, but the point here is that truth is that which corresponds to reality. Now, this is the way that uh, the Greek thinker Aristotle put it. He said, if you say that it is and it is, or you say that it isn't and it isn't, that's true. If you say that it isn't and it is, or you say that it is and it isn't, that's false. Thank God for philosophers, right? (laughs) Now, he was really the first thinker to kind of capture this, what I think is just common sense. This is the common sense view of truth. I know that this is your view of truth because you look both ways before you cross the street. Why do you look both ways before you cross the street? Because you think there is an objectively real world out there. And so when you walk into the street, you don't want your beliefs merely to be sincere. You don't want to sincerely step into that street with a sincere belief that there is no Mack truck coming down the road. Because if you turn and you look and you see that your belief doesn't match up with reality, reality is going to hurt you, right? It's going to change the way you look. Reality is what we run up against, what we bump up against, what hurts us, when we have false beliefs. And you see, reality is an objective, fixed thing. Reality exists whether you believe it or not. And this is certainly the view of the Old and New Testament. This is the, the Bible's view of truth. When you look at the, uh, the, the Hebrew word and the Greek word uh, for truth in the old, that's usually used in the Old and New Testament, you get this idea, faithfulness and conformity to fact, that which is conformed to reality. The Bible doesn't argue for this view. It simply assumes this view. Right, Romans 9.1, I am telling the truth in Christ. 
What's the opposite of truth? Well, lie. Lying. I am not lying my conscience-bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. John 2.21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. What is the, the truth? It's just the opposite of a lie. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. A lie does not correspond to reality. So when my kids tell me lies, how do I figure out they're lying? Because I inspect reality. And thankfully, God has given us the resources, the mental equipment to inspect reality. And so here's the key. Why are we going over this? Because truth is grounded in reality. Truth is grounded in reality. So when I make the claim that God exists, notice I'm not making a claim about my subjective personal preference. I'm making a claim about a being who exists outside of me. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that. It's possible that I could be wrong that God exists. I'm open to that. That's why I talk to atheists and I interact and I read atheists. But the more that I discover the evidence, the more that I've come to the conclusion that, that God exists. And that is part of the nature of reality. But at this point, I want you just to know, I, I want you to understand the nature of the claim. It's an objective claim. When I say God exists, I don't mean he exists in my mind. I mean there is a being out there, God, who exists, whether I believe in him or not. So that claim is an objective claim. Now, the secondary question is, well, is it objectively true or is it objectively false? And then that we, would, we would go down that road and talk about that. And maybe we can do that in the uh, redo session. But I want you to understand the nature of religious claims. Every religion makes objective claims. They make claims about reality. Those claims are either true or false. And so here is the claim of 2,000 years of Christianity, and I would argue that ultimately is the claim of Jesus himself, is that Christianity is true whether you believe it or not. It's objectively true. And of course, I don't, it's not period, end of story, that's the end of discussion, of course not. And when someone says, well, why do you think that? Then we have a nice long conversation about that. And so I have reasons why I think this. And let's have a, a reasonable, gracious, intelligent conversation about it. But I want you to be clear on the nature of Jesus' claims. And the nature of his moral claims and his religious claims is that Christianity is true whether you believe it or not. I think issues like justice, they are true whether you believe it or not. It's wrong to exploit people whether you believe that or not, you see. There is an objective world. Now, what do we do with this truth? Do we take this truth and go out there and beat people into submission with the truth because we have the truth? Well, of course not. <clears throat> this truth does not make you, it should not make you arrogant. This truth actually should humble you. The truth that Jesus spoke humbles you. And you realize that we are on a rescue mission with this truth. We don't go out there to beat people into submission with the truth. We go out there on mission a rescue mission with the truth. That's our approach. That's our posture with the truth. Now, there's a lot more we could say here. Let me just give you a couple resources from our organization, Stand to Reason. I'm just curious, how many of you have heard of Stand to Reason before? A few of you? Okay, good, good. Well, we've got a number of resources to help you explore these questions a little more deeply. We've got a great website that we put together, strplace.org. We've got a lot of resources there. You can connect with us on you know, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. 
For those of you who are interested in some free resources, you want to think through this a little bit more, we've got a resource table out in the lobby where you can sign up for our free training newsletter. It's not a newsletter where you're going to see pictures of our staff at bake sales or something like that. It's a newsletter where we will tackle a tough topic and help you to think through it intelligently and biblically. <coughs> Excuse me. And then there's a resource table out there with some great resources to help you think through some of the stuff a little bit more. Now, I want to conclude with just having you reflect a little bit about, uh, about Jesus and his earliest followers. Think about these questions. How does, how does Jesus, uh, his, his, his disciples die? Right? You've got the, the, the narrative of the, uh, of the book of Acts. You have Jesus' ascension. And then you have this group of disciples who, who just prior to the resurrection, right, they scatter, they take off. You have Peter denying Jesus three times. Uh, you know, their, their, their leader is crucified on a cross as a criminal. They're, a lot of them are thinking they're coming for us next. They hide. They're fearful. They're scared for their own lives. But just a couple weeks later, after this alleged resurrection, you find those very same men in the very city that Jesus is crucified in, proclaiming his death and his resurrection. Right? This is the central message what you see in the book of Acts. The death and resurrection of Jesus. Did you know, do you know how each of these men eventually died? And, and just picture, picture before the resurrection, before, uh, after, after the crucifixion, where were these guys at? They were in hiding. But eventually we discover from history that the apostle James was killed with the sword, right? This is recorded in Acts 12.2. Uh, the date of his martyrdom was sometime between 44 and 45 A.D. You have the Apostle Peter, famous for his denial of Christ. He is Peter eventually is crucified upside down sometime around 64 A.D. The Apostle Andrew is crucified for preaching Christ's resurrection around 70 A.D. Thomas is speared and then he's burned alive for this message. Philip is tortured and crucified. Matthew was beheaded. Uh, Nathaniel Bartholomew was first filleted. He was skinned alive, and then he was crucified. James the Lesser was thrown down from the temple and then beaten to death. The apostle Simon was crucified. Judas Thaddeus was beaten to death with sticks. Matthias was stoned with, by, uh, while he was hanging on a cross. Uh, Paul, Paul, the apostle Paul, was beheaded. The Apostle John was the only disciple who died a natural death, but he, was, uh, he, was, he died in exile. And we have evidence from history that he was at one time tortured and boiled in oil. When you look at church history and you look at how, how these men met their demise, it's, it's horrendous. And so then the question is, well, why do these guys die? Why would they be willing to die in such a manner? Because clearly they were, they were killed for this message that they were preaching, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Why would they die? Do you think they died because they thought that this was the preferred religion? That it was merely a personal preference? Would you give your life and die for something that you thought was subjectively true? Or did these guys have evidence that the death and resurrection of Jesus were the objective truths. We find 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All right, what does Paul say? He says, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. See, Paul doesn't say, well, go ahead and believe it anyway if it makes you feel good. In verse 19, he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Notice what Paul does here. Paul connects our faith with the facts of history. He says, look, if there is no resurrected Jesus, then this is all a waste of time. Because if there is no resurrected Jesus, this is all mythology. I mean, think about it. Say there was a church down the street, and every Sunday morning they gathered and they sang worship songs, but their songs were about a little boy in a green suit who flew around and sprinkled pixie dust on people. And then the pastor got up and he opened up a book, and the book that he opened was Peter Pan. And he read a chapter out of Peter Pan, and then he gave a sermon about how we ought to follow the example of Peter Pan. Would you go to that church? How would you feel about the people that did go to that church? You would feel pity on them. Why? Because they're following a fairy tale, not the facts. And Paul says if that's what Christianity is like, it's merely a myth, it's merely a, fact, uh, a fairy tale, it's subjectively true, true for you just because you believe it, well, that's a waste of time. That is useless. We should be pitied. But what Paul does is he takes our faith and he locks it in with the objective facts. The objective fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And that is the best explanation for why the 12 the disciples were willing to go to the death that they did. Because they were absolutely convinced that this was the objective truth for everyone, whether they believed it or not. And they were willing to die for the truth of the resurrected Jesus. And obviously, when you read the book of Acts and you hear about how these men die, you see a conviction that many of us are missing. Why were these men willing to die for this mission? Because they knew it to be objectively true. We have the objective truth, and the world needs that. That is the message of 2,000 years of church history, that is the message of Jesus himself. And our culture, the ideas of our culture, have infected us and will undermine the mission of the church. And so that's why it's important for us to understand truth and to ultimately see that that truth is embodied in the resurrected Jesus and to take that good news out to this world. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time this morning to think deeply about truth. And Father, I pray that this would just raise important questions that we would wrestle with. I pray that you would help us 
as we, we knock these things around and as we come to try and discover the truth about reality. And Father, I pray that you would give us more confidence and more conviction that what we believe is actually true, objectively true, and that those convictions would give us courage to step into a world who does not find our message to be popular, but who desperately needs the resurrected Jesus. We pray this in the true name of Jesus. Amen.